You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Good to be with you here this morning. It's October. It's the 10th month of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, which means it's nine months since I last went to the gym. And... I know you're all wondering. I make a habit of wrestling with my kids as much as I can um, because it's fun um, and because there's all kinds of studies about the psychological benefits, actually, and the developmental benefits of kids being wrestled with uh, in their younger years. And I was wrestling with India the other day, and she asked me, or she said to me, you know, Daddy, you're, you're so strong which is why I wrestle for that kind of feedback. You're so strong, uh, but I think you should go back to the gym. <laughs> Thanks, sweetie. Now go to your room. <laughs> I, ha- I was having this inner dialogue about it this- recently, um, about why-, why-, why wouldn't I have gone to the gym for nine months? And so I was doing a sort of you know, question and answer. You know, do I have time to do it? Yeah, I have time to do it. When I was going, Renee was really gracious. She, you know, she encouraged me to go in the morning. She would take care of the kids get, and get them ready for school. I'd be back in time to see them off. So it's not really a time thing. Um, can I? Can I go to the gym? Yes, I'm allowed to go to the gym. My wife lets me. The you know the government's not preventing me. Um, is it good for me to go to the gym? It is definitely. For both, not just for physical health, but mental well-being, it's good to go to the gym. Um, so why don't I go to the gym? And it struck me that, uh, yeah, it struck me that the same conversation I could have with myself when it comes to prayer. Prayer. The benefits of prayer are so obvious. The the benefits in terms of my relationship with God, the benefits in terms of the the results that I see, the answers to prayer, the way that it encourages me to focus on thanksgiving and seeing God at work in the world around me, the 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 closeness of relationship that it forms between me and God, like so many different reasons. Even if you are completely materialist atheist, you can acknowledge plenty of studies done about the psychological benefits of prayer, irrespective of whether anyone's listening. And so the same question arises: What then, if all of that is true, why don't I pray? The excuse that most of us give that we don't have time to pray is, is utterly nonsense. It's, that's nonsense. All right? we, can just, we can put that straight in the bin. We need to find another excuse. It's not a lack of time. And all of this is really important because Paul is going to talk in this passage this morning about the, both the necessity and the efficacy of prayer. And when we hear Paul tell us, command us, entreat us, encourage us 
to pray, most of our response is made up of this, this initial acknowledgement that we don't do it very well, right? And then an ensuing sense of guilt about the fact that we don't do it well. And then possibly a recommitment to try much harder tomorrow, maybe for the rest of this week. And so what I want to do is just kind of open up this idea of prayer and why it's so important for us as a community, not just as individuals, but as a community to devote ourselves to prayer, which is exactly what he says in verse 2. Look at it with me. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. There's a whole theology of prayer just in that one verse. Devoting ourselves, that is making it a priority. Staying alert in it. I think that's an acknowledgement that we're no good at it. I think Paul gets it. Right? He's not under the illusion that everyone just finds prayer so natural and when the Bible commands us to pray without ceasing that all of us are just going to pick that up and run with it. Like He knows that this is a struggle. It doesn't come easy to us. So he says, devote yourselves to it. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. He sees the power of prayer when it's orientated not merely around the things that we want or need, but when it's orientated around thanksgiving, being mindful of the way that God is working in our midst. And so he knows, he gets it, he understands, he he knows that when we do that kind of inner dialogue debate about why we don't pray, he knows all of the false excuses that we have and that underneath it all is just an an outright struggle to tame ourselves, right? to to discipline ourselves, to exhibit that fruit of the spirit, self-control and devote ourselves to prayer. He tells us to be alert in it because he can see that these Christians in Colossae are starting to fall away. They're starting to turn back. They're starting to go back to old ways of being and believing. And he knows that a great preservative for the Christian faith, a great preservative for for passionate, all of life, all about Jesus kind of faith, is prayerfulness. And he tells us to stay alert in it because he knows that we're prone to fall asleep. Literally sometimes. Renee woke me up a couple of nights ago. She had, had a nightmare. And uh, actually, during that night, a series of nightmares. And so she woke me up and she said, Johnny, can you just pray? Just pray for me. And I'm pretty sure I got halfway through before I fell asleep. So some points for getting words out, but my failure to stay alert, my failure to stay awake, indicative of something within me which is given to sleepiness. We saw this exactly in Matthew 26, remember? Jesus is coming up against the greatest trial of his earthly existence. He's come to the night of his betrayal and his death. And so he comes before God. What does he do? He doesn't try and work out a strategic plan for, for, for getting a, 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 a kind of around the inevitable. No, he falls on his face... And in desperation, with blood 
dripping from his pores, he prays. And he also asks his disciples to stay up with him and pray. Here's what happened. Ready? Matthew 26, 39 and following, he says, it says that Jesus, going a little farther, fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That is this judgment, right? This suffering. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Fundamental principle of prayer there. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Of course, they're just like us. He found them sleeping and he asked Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake, stay alert and pray so that you won't enter into temptation, right? So you won't turn back, you won't fall away. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so it is that we fail to go to the gym for nine months and we fail week in, week out to devote ourselves to prayer. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so he entreats them, he encourages them, he wants to call them into this life of devotion that's arranged around prayer and thanksgiving, prayer and praise. He wants them to stay alert in it. And he sees this, just in case you, we do what m- most of us do as, as modern Westerners and we make this all about me and a very individualistic thing between me and God, there isn't an, a call on you as an individual to pray individually, but Paul sees this as a community effort, right? He sees the, the prayer of the church as one of the instruments of God's and means of God's grace. And so if you've noticed, all through this letter, Paul speaks of prayer as if it's just something that happens naturally in the body of Christ. So back in in chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, that is about your faith, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. What a prayer. And that's for a church that he's never met before. How much more is God calling us to pray for one another, the brothers and sisters that you gather with from week to week? He sees it as a community effort. So he and his leadership team praying for this church. Then he points out that Epaphras, their local pastor, he's praying for the church. So in verse 12 of chapter chapter 4, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. I love that picture of Epaphras. That's, a good, that's who you want your pastor to be. If you have in mind 
the ideal kind of pastor, the guy that you're praying will replace me one day, right? The, 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 the guy or girl who, who, who is this or that, X or Y, at least like at the very top of the list, you need to have Epaphras in mind. You want someone who is responsible for you, for your spiritual well-being, for your nurturing and nourishment. You want him or her to be not only a servant of Christ Jesus, but someone who wrestles for you in his prayers wrestles, be devoted, stay alert, be a wrestler, someone who is wholehearted, fully committed to laboring in prayer. And so he sees this as a, as a church-wide community activity. Paul's praying for them, Epaphras is their pastor's praying for them, and now he says, make sure you yourselves are devoted, alert in prayer. I bless God, I praise God that a recent leadership meeting we had with small group leaders that on more than one occasion, different people identified our church as a church of prayer. That was probably the most encouraging thing I've heard this year because we had identified our prayerlessness as a great weakness in our church some time ago and we devoted ourselves to this idea that we would increase in prayerfulness and make prayer the heartbeat of our church. And by God's grace, I think that's starting to happen in our midst. I want to encourage you as part of this vision that Paul has for community engagement in prayer, community wrestling and devotion, I want to encourage you to come along on the last Monday night of each month as we gather here to pray for particular things. We have a focus each month. I want to encourage you this coming Friday night to come along to our prayer meeting. We have a church-wide prayer meeting. We're going to encourage you to participate in a 24-hour fast as a as a kind of a um, embodiment, physical embodiment of our desperation to see God move among us, and to come along to that meeting as we focus our attention on praying that God would renew us spiritually, renew us individually, renew us corporately, renew the community around us. That we would pray that God would bring revival in our midst. I want to encourage you to come along this Friday night to participate in that. I love this quote from R.A. Torrey uh, on the subject of church prayer meetings. He says, When the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did. For he knows that his day in that church or that community is at an end. That's the power of prayer. The power of prayerfulness. The power of having prayer at the heartbeat, at the very centre of our community life together. Now, why is all this important? Why is all this of utmost importance? Like, why does Paul say, devote yourself to this? He doesn't say that about a whole lot of things, but he says it about this. 
Devote yourselves to prayer. The reason that he does this is because prayer changes things. There's a desperation in his in his request for them to devote themselves to prayer because he can see and believes that prayer actually makes a difference. So he says in verse 3 to 4 of chapter 4, he says, at the same time as you're devoting yourselves to prayer, thanksgiving, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Pray for us so that. That is a frequent refrain when Paul's talking about prayer. He says, pray so that. That is, there is a cause and an effect going on here. Pray because otherwise these things won't happen. That's what he says. Pray, devote yourselves to prayer, labour with me in prayer, wrestle in prayer so that these kingdom outcomes would happen. He says it again in Ephesians verse 6. Just, this is another echo of what he's just called them to in, in Colossians 4. He says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, same prayer request. Then in, in Romans 15, he, he, he even goes further. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive. Be devoted. Labor with me. Strive together. Community effort. Strive together with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. Pray because prayer changes things. Pray because if you don't, these things won't happen. James says, you have not because you ask not. It's really not much more complicated than that. We do complicate it, though. One of the reasons I think we fail to devote ourselves to prayer is partly because we believe what Paul has said about Jesus in chapter 1. One of the reasons we don't devote ourselves to prayer is because we actually believe what Paul has said about Jesus. So back in chapter 1, he says about Jesus, everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he goes on, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And so it occurs to some of us, if all that is true, if Jesus really is that sovereign and supreme over all things, beginning and end, then do we really need to pray? He sees all things from beginning to end. 
He's the Alpha and the Omega, right? He's above all things. He is knitting together human history from start to finish. So if all of that is true, do we, like, what's this prayer thing about? Does prayer really make a difference? I mean, if God already knows what I'm going to pray, do I actually have to say the words? It would save me a whole lot of time if I could just say, God, you know what I'm going to say. Amen. Right? That would give me more time for Twitter. I was speaking to one of you guys recently, and you said what I've heard so many times and, and has occurred to me, right, that this idea that if God is in charge, what is the function? We're, we're pragmatic Western post-enlightenment people. Like, what's the bottom line difference this is going to make? What, in the pros and cons tally, what, what are the actual pros? Like, what's... What are the benefits of devoting myself? If I'm going to devote myself to anything, I need to know the bottom line reasons for doing so. Are, I mean, does it have any effect? And as, as I was speaking to one of you guys, the, the reason that you came up with was, well, because we're told to. We should pray because we're told to, which is a good answer. Devote yourselves to prayer with no asterisk. Or if you have time, or you know, depending on how you're feeling, just be devoted. That's called an imperative. That's a good answer. I think it's an incomplete one, though, because we need more than that. We need we need more, we need Dad to say more than just "I told you so." So we have yes. God has told us so, but it goes so much beyond that. There is the fact, as we've seen, that prayer changes things. Paul says, pray for me so that these things might happen. And then even beyond that, as I said at the beginning, there are clear benefits for us personally in terms of our own transformation, not just the transformation of the world around us, but how is prayer changing me I've got a quote here from John Calvin, and it's a longer quote, all right? So I need you guys to stay with me as I read this without dipping out. All of this is gold. He gives three reasons for why we should pray. But first, he addresses the question. He says, someone will say, does God not know, even without being reminded, both in what respect we are troubled and what is expedient for us, that is, what's good for us? so that it might, may seem, in a sense, superfluous, that is, unnecessary, that he should be stirred up by our prayers, as if he were drowsily blinking or even sleeping until he is aroused by our voice. Still, it is very important for us to call upon him. Here's his three reasons. First, that our hearts may be fired with a zealous and burning desire ever to seek, love, and serve him, while we become accustomed in every need to flee to him as to a sacred anchor. That is, as we get into the habit of first fleeing to God in the midst of our troubles, our hearts are then fired with a zealous and burning desire to seek him and love him and serve him. That's how prayer works. It's a transformative agent. 
It's an antidote to self-reliance and self-determination. That's the first thing. Secondly, he says, that there may enter our hearts no desire and no wish at all of which we should be ashamed to make him a witness while we learn to set all our wishes before his eyes and even to pour out our whole hearts. That is, as we pray, there is a transformative effect on us to make us more like Jesus in our prayers. Jesus in the garden, as we saw before, pouring out his heart to God, acknowledging that this is his darkest hour, acknowledging with bloody sweat that this is beyond his capacity to deal with, and yet saying, not my will, but yours be done. That changes us. Third way, it changes us. That we be prepared to receive his benefits with true gratitude of heart and thanksgiving. Benefits that our prayer reminds us comes from God's hand. When we are devoting ourselves to prayer, we are constantly reminded that every good gift comes to us from the Father of lights, as James says. It reminds us, and when we train our mind on the answers to prayer that we've seen, as well as acknowledging in prayer praise and thanksgiving, as Paul tells them to do in verse 2, it, it, it shapes us to be the kind of people who have eyes to see God's blessings in our lives. There's a study done recently that said if you write down two or three things that you're grateful for every night before you go to sleep, then in six weeks you will have increased exponentially in happiness, right? That's what happens when we, when we shape our minds, our consciousness, our, our, our mindfulness around thanksgiving, around gratitude. And that happens, Calvin says, as we give ourselves to prayer. And I believe that's true. So yes, it's because God tells us to do it and we trust him as our good father. Yes, it's because it makes a difference in the world. Things happen that would not have happened unless we had given ourselves to prayer. And yes, because prayer not only changes the things around us, but perhaps most importantly and profoundly, it changes me. Now, Paul moves in the next little part of our passage in in chapter 4. He moves from addressing speaking to God in prayer to addressing how we should speak to the world around us. All right, so verse 5 to 6, he says, Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, I think this is a very important call to us in this cultural moment we find ourselves in. Because in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, there are forces outside our control which are powerfully shaping the way that we relate to one another. Powerfully. And this is a new thing. This is in the last couple of years. There is a new force at work which is profoundly changing the way you think and the way that you speak to those around you. And it's variously designated as identity politics, 
or the cause of intersectionalism or whatever, whatever, however, whatever label you want to put on it, it's basically a, a force in the culture around us which is, is forcing us into tribes. It's forcing us to relate to those people around us that we identify with, right, who have the same stamp on them, and to turn against anyone who doesn't. And this has become a profoundly powerful force in our world, and it turns people against each other. So you have this bizarre situation where Kanye West, an African-American hip-hop artist, musician, when he comes out in support of Donald Trump, the biggest black African-American magazine in America says he is no longer black. He is no longer part of our tribe. It doesn't matter what colour his skin is, he is not black. He, he cannot identify with us anymore. That's weird. Or you have Jermaine Greer, the most powerful force for feminism in recent times, who comes out and says, you know, this whole trans movement, I'm not prepared to acknowledge that if a man transitions into being a woman and calls himself a woman, I'm not prepared to say that that is a woman. Because biologically, he's not a woman. She is absolutely ostracised from the very community of people who she helped form. She is, she is called now no longer a feminist, not welcome in our tribe. And this tribalism has an effect, I think a powerful effect, on Christians too. We identify, quite rightly, as Christians, followers of Jesus, adopted children of the Father, but we're put in an arena where we have all of these other competing tribes, not just tribes but whole ideologies that seem to be at war with our own, and so this is what happens. The church circles the wagons and starts to think of themselves as, you know, a persecuted group of people who mainly interact with the world outside them by judging and denouncing them. And so we've just got to make sure we preserve and conserve what we know to be true. And everyone around us is suddenly seen as a threat. You're not on my team. You think about how that influences the way that we speak to people. Now, all of this, of course, is complete nonsense. All of this is not actually how we have functioned in the past and not how most of us function in the day-to-day. I love to see my wife. My wife has a ministry that is more intensive, um, more energy-sapping, and probably of greater value to the kingdom than I do. And it happens almost entirely outside of this place. She has this profound ministry and, and mission to mainly mums down at the school that my kids go to down the road here. She's always there counselling women, helping women, cooking meals for women, engaging with women. And I see her interacting with Muslim women. Like the, that school down there, my kids are the only blonde kids there. I go to the, the, the assembly sometimes and there's black hair and then two blonde kids, right? That's how I know where they are. It's, very, it's helpful. 
And yet she moves through that school interacting with all kinds of people without any sense of defensiveness or the idea that I'm here representing my tribe and and you're here representing yours. No, there's this free exchange of goodwill and love. But I feel like that mode that we've had and always have had as God's people is under threat and we need to resist We need to take seriously what Paul says here. You know, he doesn't say, all right, here's how you're going to win the culture wars, all right? We need, first of all, to have this really strong identity of who I am as a Christian, not just as a Christian, but an evangelical, right, like all the subheadings that I'm not just a Christian, I'm all of those things as well, and that pits me against not only the world around me, but my brothers and sisters as well, right? And then once we've got that, here's how you fight the culture wars and make sure that we come out on top and that Christendom is, is rediscovered and that we can retake the world. And He doesn't say any of that. Even in the midst of, of being in prison for being a Christian, with every excuse for thinking like it's him against the world, no, he says, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Time is precious. Make the most of it. Let your speech always be gracious. Oh, my God. If only we would read that and obey it. Like, even if you just obeyed that this week in your Facebook interactions. Like, the kingdom of God might actually come among us with power if we obey that bit. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I love that idea because I love salt, and salt makes everything better. And and that's the idea. It, It makes it more pleasing, more pleasurable. Gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person, irrespective of where they're coming from and whether they see you as a tribal enemy or not. Speaking to God, speaking to those around us, but both of those things are of utmost importance and we need to devote ourselves wholly to them in Jesus' name. Now, I've got a whole nother sermon here about his farewell greetings to those people, and I nerd out massively on this stuff, and everything within me wants to go through verse 7 to the end and tell you all about each of these people and their backstory and how God had been working in their lives and how they make up the, the Paul's mission team in the early church. I don't have any time to do that. And you know what? I think probably we've got out of this passage this morning what God wants us to get out of it. I trust that that's true. If you want to know more about some of those characters that he mentions, you can pick up the series guide and, and on the last page I go through a brief explanation a a better thing to do would just be take those names and then google them and find out more about them because these people are people that God used profoundly to establish the kingdom in the first century that kingdom that we are now a part of and we are the beneficiaries of their sacrificial labor for the gospel so it's good to know them but we're out of time so I just want to pray uh, pray for us pray for God's blessing on us in this cultural moment. Father, we need your help. We just acknowledge that we need your help. We acknowledge that when it comes to prayer, the, the spirit is willing. It really is. But the flesh is weak.
So please help us to help each other to devote ourselves to prayer and to stay alert. Lord, may we do that through our gathering together at church prayer gatherings, in our gathering together in our small groups. May those places be devoted first to prayer. Lord, may you lay on us the necessity of having partners, fellow brothers and sisters who we can share with and share our burdens with and share both our prayer and praise with. Lord, please continue the work that you've already done and begun in making prayer the heartbeat of this church. And bless us, Lord, as we go out into the world. Bless us that you might enable us that that miraculous gift in our time of speaking graciously to everyone we meet. May our speech be seasoned with salt. May it be pleasurable for other people to consume, whether it's online or in person, in all things, Lord. Help us to be your ambassadors by speaking your words by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.